Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Okay, today our guest is Taylor Berg Kirkpatrick. Taylor is a professor at the University of California in San Diego. Prior to that, he was at CMU and before that at Semantic Machines and Berkeley. Taylor, it's good to have you on the program. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Today, we wanted to talk about some work that you did as a PhD student and then continuing on some applications of that work. This is on OCR of historical documents and then what you can do with these documents after you have OCR from them. And do you want to give us an outline of like, why is OCR on historical documents hard? Yeah, well, I can talk about why it's hard and I can talk about why it's useful too. As most people know, if you take an image of some modern text that was digitally typeset, super clean, and you run it through most OCR systems, you get nearly perfect accuracy. Like it just works out of the box. We've kind of solved that problem to some extent. And so you might ask like, well, why isn't historical OCR also solved? And the answer is basically historical documents don't look like modern documents for a couple of reasons. One is they have a lot more noise. So do you imagine how a document was actually produced in, let's say, the early modern period. It was produced on one of these historical printing presses, which is like this big contraption where you're taking little metal stamps and fitting them into these kind of mechanical grooves. And then you paint ink on it and you press it. And so you get all kinds of noise from that. You get variation in inking level across a document, across a page. When that groove sort of changes its straightness, you get wandering baselines of the text. Then also you have variability in the underlying shapes of the characters. So like the fonts that we have nowadays are fixed in recent timescales. Like we've been using Times New Roman for a long time. But if you look back across hundreds of years, there's kind of an evolution of font shapes of even writing systems. And so you go back far enough and Sometimes it can be hard to even read these things. Like if you look at like Fracture or like Black Letter, uh, there's, there's kind of certain historical fonts that are just look quite different. And this means that systems trained on modern documents don't generalize well to historical documents. Um, there's also stuff I'm kind of glossing over. Like there's a ton of issues from the underlying scanning process as well. A lot of historical documents were captured on super high contrast microfilm in the 1980s in libraries and then the original documents are either disposed of because they were, they were like newspapers and thought to be kind of low value, or they're still around, but you can't really get access to them. And so all you have are these scans where you get, it looks like a terrible Xerox, like a really 1980s Xerox of, of a book that wasn't totally flat in the scanner. And so you get all these weird issues from that as well. I saw in one of your papers, if two pages were next to each other for a long time, you might get bleeding of ink from one page onto the other. Yeah, that's a pretty common problem. Or in most cases, actually bleeding back from the, the back side of the page is bleeding kind of through the, the print on the opposite side of the page. And so you're getting like backwards text letters appearing over the top of the letters you're trying to recognize. That's actually a problem <laughs> that this is maybe overkill, but we've always wanted to apply a machine learning solution to that because it's really a source separation problem. Like whatever you recognize on the back side of the page is stuff that you can kind of subtract off the front side of the page and vice versa. And so the two recognition models should be talking to each other. Yeah, that's an interesting problem. We can come back to the interesting machine learning problems that are inherent in, in all of this and like why this might be interesting just from a learning perspective. The interesting point here, as you said, is that we can't really just take 
the existing models that we use for typical modern OCR stuff, like I, I take my phone and I point it at a sign and not only can I recognize the text, I can translate it into Chinese or whatever. That doesn't really work for historical documents for these reasons. So if I want to get the text out of historical documents, what do I do? What kind of methods do people use to solve this problem? If you can imagine the people who consume this kind of technology and, and use it in their core research, you're talking about people in literature, people in history, people in the humanities who need to get transcriptions of large collections of historical documents. You guys touched on this when you were talking to David Bammon about computational humanities and digital humanities. They basically want to be able to ask simple statistical questions about the text itself. The kind of simplest case is just search. You might want to be able to like search for the occurrence of a word. From what I've seen, a lot of people use commercial systems like Abbey Fine Reader, uh, which is known to be decent in historical documents. Those systems, though, like a little bit opaque because they're commercial systems, are probably some combination of supervised methods, maybe some data augmentation, maybe some kind of rule-based post-correction, maybe some statistical post-correction. And so that's one method, which is you try to deal with the domain gap through various techniques. Like you try to get as much diverse supervised data as you can, even if it's out of domain. And then you try to build a system that doesn't overfit to it so that it can generalize to historical text. So that's one set of approaches. Another approach that my group has focused on is to treat it as an unsupervised learning problem. So instead of trying to learn from supervised data that's modern and generalized to historical data, you just get a bunch of historical document images without the text labeling, the kind of supervision, and you try to fit a model that treats the text as a latent variable. You kind of treat the, the OCR problem like a decipherment problem. It's like a noisy channel model, right? It's like you've got an image of text that's in some weird font, and it's maybe such a weird font that it doesn't look like any font you've ever seen before. But you know it is a font, which means that each time an A was printed or a B was printed, it's going to be roughly the same shape. Like, there'll be multiple stamps for an A in a given type case, uh, but they're supposed to all look the same. Sometimes they get warped and stuff, but they're supposed to all look the same. And so there's this regularity assumption. If you can figure out what the A looks like, then you can see where all the A's are. If you figure out what the B looks like, you can see where all the B's are, okay? So that's one constraint. The other constraint is you know it's text. You know it's not a random sequence of characters, right? It, it comes from some language model. And that language model, you may have generalization problems, but they're different from the font generalization problem. Like maybe you can, you know, count character statistics in relatively modern documents, and they will still generalize to these historical documents. And so now you're trying to basically find the font such that when you push the image through it, gives you a sequence of text that matches your prior distribution on text, which looks very much like if you remember kind of Kevin Knight's decipherment stuff, like working on the Zodiac cipher and other things, looks very much like that. So you're kind of learning an emission model with a fixed transition model and trying to induce the latent sequence. That's interesting. And so do you want to talk about some of the details of how the model actually works when you try to do an unsupervised model of OCR on this? Yeah. From far away, you're kind of thinking HMM. Text is the sequence of states. The transition is your language model. The emission is your type production model. And then you run forward backward. But of course, it's not an HMM. It's, it's very much like speech in some sense. The basic unit that a system like this operates on is a text line image. So it's a really long image of one line of text where you don't know the character boundaries ahead of time. So while you're doing the normal HMM stuff of updating the emission distributions with 
EM, stuff like that. You're also trying to induce a latent segmentation. So really it's a semi-Markov model or a hidden semi-Markov model. And that means that in some sense, the emission model is more intuitive, right? Instead of saying that we're going to stay in the B state for multiple columns of pixels, and then each time we transition to the B state or stay in the B state, we emit a new column of pixels. That would be hard to define an intuitive emission distribution on that would, as you stayed in the B state, give you something that looked like a B. You'd have to kind of remember how far through the B state you were and things like this, which is effectively making it a semi-Markov model. But if you view it a priori as a semi-Markov model, then your emission model looks like we're printing a B right here between, you know, pixel column I and pixel column J what should the distribution on pixels look like? And you get to put a bunch of machinery in there. You can say, well, there might be other latent variables, like how far up or down is this particular B gonna get printed? How, how much inking noise is there? Is there any warping, stuff like this. And so that's where a lot of the work went on these models. It, like the language model is sort of basic, it's like Kneezer Nye character cram model. The inference procedures are known, we're doing basically either course define inference or beam search in the model. What's interesting is that in the emission model, you can embed prior knowledge about the printing press. You can kind of make it a cartoon of the printing press. As I mentioned, modeling things like baselines of text and inking and, and stuff like that. And, I mean, it's an unsupervised learning problem. Like decipherment, the more prior knowledge you put into the model and the less details you have to learn from the unlabeled data, the more effective it will be. I guess I don't know if this actually made it into your thesis. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what your, the, your thesis title was, but in your PhD, you had a series of papers that introduced particulars of the model to handle like uh, the inking and the baseline and all of this stuff. And I'd encourage listeners to go look at those papers. They're kind of interesting. And so on like the learning, some interesting things there. I think we could move on from the particulars of this model. How well does it work? Can you actually get reasonable OCR on documents from this? It works pretty well. It works well enough that in a couple of kind of larger projects that I'm working on right now, where we're doing the next stage of, of trying to do computational bibliography in some sense, we're kind of analyzing books as, as artifacts, as kind of material objects and trying to say things about their history. The system that we're using is this system. I'll mention a couple of reasons for that in a second. But how well it works, of course, depends on the domain. There's a huge diversity in difficulty and types of difficulty of historical documents. In our evaluations, we focused on two pretty well-known data sets. One is the, the Old Bailey Corpus, which is a cool data set. It's these proceedings of the Old Bailey Courthouse in London. As entertainment for the population, they would take their most extreme cases and write little synopses of them, of the, of the rulings, and then give them to the public, I think, like, weekly or something like this. And this goes really far back into the early modern period. And on, on that data, across 100 or 200 year period, we found we were getting, on average, I, if I recall correctly, kind of like 90% character level accuracy and depending maybe like 80% word level accuracy. If you compared it at the time with the kind of most widely used system, Abbey Fine Reader, it was a pretty big improvement in performance. Like, Maybe Abby Fine Reader is getting like 50% of the words right and we were getting like 80%. These are rough numbers and they probably change now. Like Abby Fine Reader is updating all the time. We also looked at historical newspapers, which are harder in some cases because there's oftentimes like they've been more damaged with time or there's kind of more typesetting noise. And we were getting similar numbers there and systems like Abby Fine Reader are getting maybe like 50% of words right. So... Definitely for the periods that we looked at, we were getting market improvements. However, in practice, I would say that 
this kind of unsupervised system can be more fragile. If something goes wrong with its interpretation of the font, like it doesn't kind of learn to segment characters because maybe there was a huge amount of over-inking or maybe you have a font with a ton of ligatures, then everything goes wrong. And so you'll go from like 80% accuracy to like 20% accuracy. Can you explain what a ligature is briefly for people who don't know? Yeah, a ligature you can think of as like co-articulation and speech. So for certain character bigrams, T and an H, when they appear next to each other, you might have a special stamp for the T and the H together that actually connects their glyphs. And the glyphs might change because, you know, the H is following a T or vice versa. I think this is most common in modern fonts for like FI. It's really noticeable there. Right. Yeah. FI is the classical example. Yeah. So are you able to get good language models for this type of historical documents? Or is it hard to find data to train such models? It can be hard, again, depending on the domain. What we found was sort of surprising is that the language model doesn't matter as much as you might expect. I did a lot of work on trying to get the most efficient, highest capacity character Ingram model we could get working with full inference in the system. And it turned out that, you know, going beyond a six gram character language model didn't help performance, substantially slowed things down, and sometimes introduced errors because then your inference had to become more proximate. I think there's kind of two reasons for this. One of these is the domain mismatch. If you don't have perfectly in-domain text data to train the language model on, and you're using a really high-capacity language model, you'll overfit to the domain difference, and that'll hurt your performance. And so maybe a six-gram model, if you're training on modern New York Times data, is all you really want to learn about modern New York Times data if you're going to then use that language model on, on old school text. Now, what if you do have in-domain data? Well, even in that case, we saw you got some gains from, from using, like, take Old Bailey, manually transcribe as much as you can, and then split it in half and use the transcribe data as your training data for your language model and then try to, you know, do OCR on the other half. You'll get some gains from that, but it's not as pronounced. I forget the specific numbers, but my rough guess is like you might go from like word level accuracy of 80% to maybe 85% on some things. And that's because the core of the problem is really the emission model. Once you have a pretty good idea of what each character shape looks like and you can recognize them, then you don't really need much more than a simple language model to recognize the messed up characters that appear every so often. Like, think of it like a closed task. Like, suppose you know every character in a sentence except for one, and you're trying to predict that masked character. How kind of wide of ingram context do you actually need for that? Probably not that big. <laughs> like, you almost just need a dictionary, right? In fact, like older school systems like Tesseract don't really use statistical language models in the sense you might be expecting. They kind of use like word whitelists, vocabulary, where you just say, let's stay in the vocabulary, otherwise we don't care. So a lot of the difficulty is mostly on the emission side. So uh, when it comes to the emission uh, model, does it help or hurt to include data from in your unsupervised model training from multiple like printers, right? Because each of, each of the different printers will have its own artifacts. Really good question. When you're doing unsupervised learning, you don't, like the notion of overfitting and generalization doesn't quite mean the same thing. In theory, you could train this model independently from every other part of your data set on a single page. Like you could learn parameters just for a single page, the single page you want to test on. So if you have data from multiple printers and multiple fonts, 
there's not really a great reason to train on all of them jointly unless you kind of need more than a single page to pull statistics to get a good idea of the font. What we found is that a single page is kind of sufficient if your model's set up correctly. Most characters in the alphabet will appear on a single page, and the ones that don't are rare, <laughs> kind of by definition. Uh, and often the language model can figure them out if you have the rest of the font figured out. So training on a single page seems to work fine, and, and so there wasn't really a need to pool between different fonts and printers and things like this. That's really interesting. Yeah, the more common scenario, though, is that you actually want to transcribe an entire book, and a book is usually printed at the same printing house using the same typecase and usually was scanned at the same time, so it has the same kind of scanning noise. So what makes more sense is to just try pooling statistics on a book, and you can get some improvements that way. But again, not as pronounced as I would have expected. This may also be an artifact of the of this kind of unsupervised model. Uh, I don't want it to sound like I'm saying that you know, generally better language models aren't helpful for OCR and supervised OCR for other kinds of models, they may be extremely helpful. Like maybe you want like a huge neural model, but for this unsupervised setting, it, it didn't seem as helpful as you might have thought. So I'm wondering how much of sharing of parameters do you think is necessary or useful when you're modeling different sizes of the font of the same, maybe in the same book or even on the same page? Parameter sharing was absolutely critical to get the kind of original model here to work. It's sort of subtle, and at first it seems sort of stupid, but I, I like it. So you can imagine one naive way that you deal with not knowing the character segmentations ahead of time, right? Which means that you don't know the width of each character in your font ahead of time, is just to say, well... We have a separate set of parameters for G when it's 30 pixels wide, for G when it's 31 pixels wide, for G when it's 32, etc. right? And so now you can effectively learn K different Gs where K are the number of widths you're allowing the model to consider. That's clearly a bad idea because you might like learn A is one of your K different Gs and it gets all confused and you can't actually get OCR out of it. So you clearly want to share between different widths while the model's still uncertain about widths. The next most naive approach is you say, well, we have one big G template, our kind of grid of weights for the density on ink whenever you're inside the G. And if you're generating a thin G, because you think maybe Gs are thin, or maybe you're at the binding of a book where the page kind of recedes away from you in the Z dimension, so things kind of get compressed a little bit. If you're generating a thin G, just stop early. Go through your template left to right. Once you get to, you know, K pixels in, the width of the thing you're generating, just stop. Okay? So you are doing some parameter sharing there, but you're doing it in kind of the wrong way. You're saying that, like, different widths of Gs all share, like, prefixes of their shape which does bad parameter sharing too. Throughout learning, if you peek at the templates you get out of that, you end up with these sort of Gs that are split in half and you're kind of learning a really skinny G and then all of a sudden it transitions to a big G and it gets all, all kind of discontinuous. So here's what you really want, and this is probably obvious now given this lead up, is you want to say we have one big G template that is in some sense widthless, okay? It is like what G would look like if you stretched it to 100 pixels wide, no matter how wide it is in reality, okay? Now, when we generate from that template, we pick a width of the actual token we're going to generate, and then you apply some kind of convolution, essentially, to downsample your super wide G to the width that you're trying to generate. And when you backprop from that, you now kind of propagate into all pixels of your template, regardless of the width you're trying to learn, and so you share parameters in, in kind of a smooth way across all, all widths. 
So that was like the most critical thing to get this to work. The same reasoning applies to inking, to offsets, to all these other things. You want to share as much as possible into a single representation of each character and the font. Yeah, that's a really cool insight. Thanks. Uh, so coming back to something you hit on earlier, there are, as you said, some interesting learning problems, some reasons to think this problem is interesting, not just from a historical document analysis perspective, but also from a just fundamental machine learning perspective. Do you want to talk about that for a bit? Yeah, sure. I can talk about it. this is one of the reasons I continue to be interested in this problem, apart from just that the application side is also really cool. So like my group is both interested in the downstream applications and cares about history and things like this. But we're also kind of half a ML NLP group. And so problems that kind of serve double duty, like they have interesting applications that we care about, but also are great playgrounds for new machine learning are ideal in our view. And this, this I think is one of them. This is an oversimplification, but my view is to some extent is there's kind of two different ends of the modeling spectrum. And this might sound weird for a second, but at one end you have things, let's say particle simulation or like simulating physical processes for which you really know all the underlying rules. Like, you know, either Newtonian mechanics or kind of quantum physics to the extent you want to put it in your model. And really what you're doing is, is inference. You're kind of setting up a system that you know the causal processes that allow it to unfold. And then you're watching what happens so you can draw some conclusion from it. That's kind of at one end. At the other end, you have things like image recognition or machine translation, where the rules of the process of going from a sentence in English to a sentence in Spanish or going from a picture of a cat to the decision that it is, in fact, a cat. The underlying process there is is what? Well, it's really the it's the human brain, right? Like that. It's some kind of perceptual process that we have some vague understanding of. But we really have no general satisfactory causal understanding of, right? And so what do we do in these cases? Well, we, do, we don't write down the rules of the system. We don't know them. It's not directly an inference problem. It's a learning problem. Instead, we go get a whole bunch of labeled data where we just caught humans doing the thing that we want to model. We got so much of it that we can use it to inform a really high capacity neural model that we train on that data. And that works great, you know? But we kind of don't really know what's going on underneath the hood, but it works great because they have so much data. So you can think of it like you inform your model either with prior knowledge or you inform it with supervised data, kind of two extremes, all right? The kind of unsupervised learning that I find the most fun to some extent is right in the middle. It's where you know something about the causal process, but there's a lot of details that are either very difficult to specify or you just don't know that you do want to learn from data. And so historical OCR, especially in the early modern period, kind of satisfies that ideally. You can build these kind of cartoons of the printing press. You're not actually simulating the atoms in the printing press because that would be impossible and not worthwhile, right? But you have some vague cartoon. You, you kind of put in the things I was talking about, like a notion of regularity and notion of inking and stuff like that. And then there's a bunch of stuff you don't know. And now you try to use machine learning to learn that from data. And it's this kind of interplay of what we know in advance that we've in, embedded in the system through modeling assumptions and what we don't know, which we try to learn with high capacity model. And so the model we've been talking about, I think, isn't sort of perfectly balancing those two ends. It's much more on the statistical cartoon side. It, we're kind of relying a lot on what we know about the printing press and learning only a little bit, just the state of the front from the data. But if you wanted to generalize this kind of approach to, I don't know, like historical handwriting or kind of 
even older, weird documents. There's this kind of class of documents that are handwritten, but are like medieval manuscripts, but are so carefully handwritten that they're, they're kind of in between handwriting and, and printed stuff because they're so regular and how they're written. For those, you could probably learn how to do OCR on them using a similar model, but because there is some variance within each character type, uh, just like the variance of the, the, the scribe as they're writing it, and that variance won't look like simple overexposure, underexposure, shifting up and down. There will be some kind of nonlinear warpings there. You really need to have some kind of neural net in your model. You need to have some part of the model's parameterization that can learn those kinds of difficult nonlinear transformations without you specifying them by hand. And so I think that the kind of interesting machine learning problem is how do we do that? How do we have both a high-capacity neural model in the kind of module that that we need it but at the same time allow yourself to specify these strict conditional independence assumptions that inform the model what we do know in advance and you can think i mean this is kind of the problem more broadly in machine learning right now like where you see papers kind of going back and forth on both ends of the spectrum we have super high capacity models that can learn if you give them infinite data perfectly right and then we have models that are very kind of rigid but embed a lot of prior assumptions and we're kind of trying to get both but it's difficult to both have interpretable modeling assumptions and high-capacity neural models in the same system. Yeah, I like that framing of things. So you talk about OCR as a general class of problems where you can get an interesting trade-off here. Have you thought of other classes of problems where you see the same kind of trade-off between like knowing about the underlying process versus needing to learn from data? Kind of all of NLP to some extent, right? Like, like we know linguistics. I don't think you can really call it a causal process in the same sense that with the printing press we're modeling the physical process that produced our data but there's a lot of commonality like there are cross-cutting properties of language that we know from hundreds of years of linguists looking at human data and thinking about language data that we should ideally be able to inform our models of why require them to learn it directly from raw data but at the same time we know that most of the linguistic formalisms we have break down at the edges on, you know, Twitter data or, or kind of whatever domain of data you're talking about. And rule-based systems of old are super brittle and don't scale and have a lot of issues. And so kind of across NLP, like a problem of your choice, you could imagine putting syntax in it seems like a good idea. In recent years, we've been seeing a lot of gains without doing that. And there's been some controversy like, well, maybe we don't need syntax for anything. Maybe we just need tons of data. My feeling is like, that's true if you have tons of data. But for some of the most interesting applications, you don't. Either it's expensive to collect or kind of impossible to collect in some sense. Like I'm thinking like kind of grounded semantics research or semantics research in general. It's hard to get humans to write down their internal formalisms or give you direct annotation for it. So you kind of only get indirect supervision. Thanks. Those are interesting insights. So I think we've uh, hit on historical OCR, why it's hard, how you solve the problem, why it's interesting from a machine learning perspective. I think we could spend the rest of this time on what you're doing now, which is what interesting things can you do with this given a reasonably performant historical OCR system? Yeah, totally. One thing I just want to say is I'm not a historian. I'm not a bibliographer. So everything that we're kind of doing more on the applied side, we do in collaboration with some expert in the field. One of the things we did a couple of years ago, it was kind of the first step for our group in this line of work, was tackle a task called compositor attribution, 
which is probably opaque without further explanation. First, let me tell you a little bit about historical printing and, and how it worked. In the early modern period, the documents were printed at these printing houses where they would have a printing press or maybe a couple printing presses. In order to do that, as we talked about, there's people, workers at the printing house who are taking the, uh, are taking the type, like the little metal stamps, assembling them, and then printing it. And they're doing this in parallel because they want to do it quickly. So they'll take the manuscript that they're supposed to make a printed book out of, divide it up page by page amongst a bunch of workers. Each worker is responsible for setting the type for some subset of the whole book. At the end, they, they put it all together in, into the actual product. Okay. Now, at that time, these workers, which are called compositors, took a lot of liberty with their transcription of the manuscript into the printed form they were about to make a printed page out of. They were balancing a bunch of constraints. One is they're trying to get the, the spacing right so that, you know, they don't have too much white space at the end or they kind of don't stop at a certain point in a sentence. They are making up their own spellings to some extent because spellings weren't really standardized at the time. They're maybe in some cases worried about running out of a particular stamp on a given page. I'm not 100% sure about that one. So they're kind of satisfying all these constraints and injecting their own biases into it. And the result is that, you know, whatever the original manuscript was, like imagine one of Shakespeare's plays, what you actually get in the printed version is an edited version. Compositors are known to have done things like delete words, change words, delete entire sentences, paraphrase sentences, respell basically every word, change punctuation, change a question mark to a comma, all kinds of stuff. It'd be like if your inkjet printer or laser printer or whatever decided like it was going to, you know, actually fundamentally change the text you're trying to print, which is, would be kind of scary. Can I clarify something? You have an original manuscript that has pages. Are you saying that I take a manuscript page and I say, you compositor, you do this page, and then I give the next page to the next compositor so that like the compositor has no flexibility to like repaginate? That's right. So the humanities expert that we do this in collaboration with was uh, Hannah Alpert Abrams, who's now at the NEH. And this is also with my student, Maria Ruskina and Dan Garrett. And she told us a lot about this process. I've forgotten some of it, but there's this notion of, I think this is right, you're, you're printing on kind of like a bigger sheet of paper that when divided in half gives you essentially four pages. So the backside two pages, the front side two pages, that's going to be folded into some segment of the book, right? But across the fold on that page, those pages aren't going to be consecutive because there's going to be other folded pages that go in there and get stapled or bound together. And so that, I think, was the kind of guiding constraint behind who got what. They wanted to make sure that you were printing a, a set of these larger pages that were coherent so everybody could get folded together at the end. But yeah, they, they weren't like choosing which page. They weren't going in order. Like they did some assignment process and then they printed and at the end it all got assembled. Wow. And so what were you trying to do? You were trying to decide, given a page, who was the compositor? Yeah. So why might you care? Well, it comes back to the editing process. Shakespeare's first folio is the document that I think has received probably the most study along these lines. The reasoning being that we're interested, for historical reasons, in, in kind of what the original forms of Shakespeare's plays were as they were performed historically, contemporaneously with Shakespeare, as they were written by him in a manuscript. Those have been lost, for the most part, is my understanding. What is left is all these noisy duplicates from the printing press. Noisy because of the compositors. Now, as we talked about, you know, compositors are putting their kind of personal preferences in, and each compositor, therefore, has kind of different biases and different levels of noise, okay? There are also kind of multiple iterations of 
printing Shakespeare's work. The first folio is the first collection of printing of his work, but there are later uh, editions as well, where they were reprinted from kind of different sources and stuff like this. So if you're looking at the first page of Hamlet, okay, and you want to know the first quote of Hamlet in the whole play, and you're looking at Shakespeare's first folio, and you see something where it ends in a question mark, and you're like, I think probably this was a question because it says so in the first folio, but we know the compositors sometimes change out periods for question marks willy-nilly. Was that really in the performance of the play? Was that phrased as a question or was it phrased as a statement? Okay. Then you can ask, well, this compositor, the one who printed that page, what other pages did they print? Do we have better information about those pages so we can see whether this compositor was noisy? If they were noisy, then we probably don't trust the first folio for trying to figure out what the first quote of Hamlet was. We might want to look at a different edition. So that's why it's of interest. It's also of interest, like, compositors are kind of these silent, unacknowledged workers of the printing press era that had some editorial say, but are often unnamed and unknown. So the extent to which you can kind of track them and what they are doing, I think historians have told me that's of interest for historical reasons. So the task is you get all the images of all the pages of Shakespeare's first folio, the first printed edition of all his plays. There's kind of multiple versions of the system. The first version is you say there are K compositors. Let's say there's five of them. Why five? Well, you can go back and look at manual bibliographers, what they predicted for the first folio, and use that as a rough guess. Now we build a generative model that says each page is going to pick from the set of compositors. Each compositor has a bunch of parameters that determine that compositor's behavior. And then you go from the text of a collated modern edition, which you think of kind of canonicalized and standardized, through the compositor, which is partially a string transducer and partially kind of a visual spacing model, since that was also part of their behavior, to generate the data. And then you run this like a clustering model, and what you get out is an assignment of pages to these different sets of behavior parameters. And then... For Shakespeare's first folio, because it was studied so heavily by old school bibliographers, we have a bunch of guesses of the kind of what probably the correct attribution is, and so we can compare. And so if you build this model using the same features that they were looking at, you can think of it kind of like manual detective work. Some of them are visual, some of them are, are orthographic. What we found is that you get roughly the same predictions at kind of like an 80-90% accuracy level. Now that's not to say that this means we're 80 or 90% correct about history. All this means is that if you embed the same assumptions that manual bibliographers did, you get the same predictions. Whether or not they are right is, you know, I can't really weigh in on that. Yeah, that's really interesting. You were telling us about constraints on one compositor doing a particular set of pages because of the way that the page would be folded and actually inserted into a book. Can you inject those assumptions into your modeling process? You definitely could, and we wanted to, though it's a huge pain because you have to go back and now kind of reconstruct the physical organization of the book you're talking about. And we were operating directly with document images, though you probably could kind of figure that out. Uh, that that would be like, I mean, that's something we talked about, and it would be really cool to do. Yeah, that's a really interesting project. Um, any others you want to tell us about? Yeah, so something that we're working on now, and this is part of a larger NSF-funded project with, uh, it's a collaboration between my group at UCSD and then Chris Warren's group, who's in the English department at CMU, and then Max Gisela's group, who's in the stats department at CMU. It's called Print and Probability, which I like as a title. And here, it's kind of like compositor attribution, but it's larger scale and more interesting in some ways. 
We're trying to do printing house attribution for as many documents from the early modern period as we can get our hands on. The reason why this is interesting is that, I mean, there's a whole bunch of political and historical stuff going on during this time period. There's a lot of change. Like, in some sense, the, the invention of the printing press was one of the driving forces behind the Protestant Reformation because you can start disseminating information in a new way and it's had a lot of effects. So printing of documents was tied with these political issues and with political persecution in a lot of interesting ways. And during certain time periods, there was a lot of thought going on about freedom of press. Should press be free? Should we be allowed to print whatever we want? Not just write whatever we want, because, you know, you can write a manuscript and no one reads it, but print whatever you want. Because if you print, a bunch of people are going to read. That's more dangerous. That's kind of more visible to the, to the powers that be, you know. And uh, so at the time, a lot of thought about and arguments for freedom of press and things like this were themselves printed and disseminated. But because at the time printing wasn't free, you could get thrown in jail or beheaded for printing something controversial. Printers who were supporting this were very afraid of associating their names with these documents. So there was a lot of what's called clandestine printing. Pamphlets and documents and little treatises were printed in secret without the printer's insignia on it and then distributed, which was also dangerous. And we still have a lot of those today. One really interesting example that Chris Warren has told me about and kind of is one of our focusing artifacts for this project is called Areopagitica. It's a pamphlet written by John Milton about freedom of press. And this is kind of, it brings, shows you the irony, right? It's a, it's a document about freedom of press being important, and yet it's printed secretly because they're worried about getting persecuted. The printer, the person who actually stuck their neck out and printed this secretly is still unknown, right? There's a lot of theories about it, but still unknown. And so there's been a lot of historical debate, like who, who printed this, which of the printing houses at the time might have done this, and stuff like that. Now, Okay, we get to the kind of the computational side. So how do historians actually try to do that kind of attribution? Like looking at images or actually looking at the original physical artifact of a printed pamphlet or book and trying to come up with evidence that lets you make a case for it having been printed by this particular printer in this particular printing house. Well, again, kind of like in the case of compositor attribution, it looks like kind of manual detective work, okay? So the biggest cue that I know about that Chris has told me about in kind of prior bibliographic work is to find instances, individual imprints of stamps within the book that came from a metallic stamp that was damaged in some way, right? A priori, like within a given time period, within a given kind of city, the printing presses are going to be using fonts that look very, very similar. So just knowing what the underlying shape of a G looks like in this particular book might tie you to a time period and location, but it's not going to tell you the printing house, okay? But as soon as that G, the metallic stamp becomes physically damaged, like it gets cracked somewhere or it becomes warped, it becomes like a fingerprint, right? Now, whenever you see that particular kind of damaged G, you know it came probably from the same physical artifact, all right? And so you say, okay, great. So now maybe we can say these two clandestinely printed documents came from the same printing house, but how do we know the printing house itself? Well, the answer is printing presses were rare and precious. It's not like there were separate printing presses for secret documents and separate ones for not secret documents. I imagine in my head that it's like at night, they're using the same printing press for printing the local newspaper to print these secret documents and then distribute them. So there's a lot of documents out there with the printer insignia on them. And probably every printing press that we care about has some document that is labeled with the printer. 
if we can find a damage glyph in common between Areopagitica, for instance, and a newspaper or book that wasn't controversial at the time, now we have strong evidence that it came from that printer. And so that's exactly what kind of these historians have done. They've gone through by hand, looked at individual character bounding boxes, tried to collate across works that they they thought probably shared a printer, and did this all manually. There's like entire PhD theses on this. And so the project we're working on is basically thinking about, can you use AI and machine learning to scale that same reasoning process? Right, sort of like the compositor attribution. We're going to use their same underlying assumptions, the same types of evidence, but now we just want to do it at scale. So you can not just look at the couple ones you found in a book and look at the couple books you thought were relevant. You can do this for all books in the Ebo collection, which is like one of the biggest collections of images of early modern documents. And you can think of this as like, it's also kind of a network problem, right? So there's kind of multiple stages. You want to first identify all the character bounding boxes. And so these the unsupervised OCR systems I was talking about are, are great for this because they are kind of directly doing the segmentation, directly kind of trying to shift characters up and down to align them. So you can use them to extract out kind of canonical versions of, of each character within a document. Then you want to identify which ones of those are damaged in an interesting way, which is a vision problem that we don't have a lot of supervision for, so can you do this unsupervised? And then finally, you want to expose for each artifact in your collection the set of stamps that you think were present or used to print that document, and now try to cluster them across all documents, maybe injecting some prior knowledge that, you know, these two printing houses shared type between them, these ones did not, this document probably didn't come from this one, and do some kind of graph clustering problem on top of that to figure out the printer assignment. Ideally, this should be a joint process, and you should kind of iterate and, and kind of what you're finding in the network problem informs how you do the recognition and similarity problems and informs how you even do the LCR. And so that's kind of the, the long-term direction for that project. That's really cool. Uh, quick question here. How many printing houses in, in total are we talking about? That's a good question. Yeah, I, I don't have a great answer to that. It kind of depends on the time period. And this problem, it doesn't occur just in one decade, right? It occurred like you have secretly printed documents over hundreds of years. And so at a given time, we'd have to ask Chris. But like what I have in my head is that we're considering like maybe 10 to 20 printing houses at a time within some span. This is fascinating. The main thing I thought about as you talked about both of these projects is that, again, from a like, why is this an interesting machine learning problem? It's because interpretability here is key. These problems don't have answers. And so if you have a machine learning system that makes a prediction and doesn't say anything about why it made that prediction, it's just going to be totally ignored. It's useless. It doesn't, it doesn't do anything at all. In order for this to actually be useful, it has to be interpretable in some sense. And this is this is fascinating. Right. What you're actually looking for is the model's interpretation. And you want that interpretation to be based in understood assumptions. The only way you can do this kind of research is to kind of specify your assumptions and then follow some deductive chain. And then the answer you get out is kind of conditioned on the assumptions. It could, of course, be wrong because we'll never know the true the truth about history, but we can kind of come up with different visions of it based on the assumptions we put in. So yeah, that's super important here. But at the same time, you still have all the other issues with AI. Like we have tons of noise. We're talking about like complicated distributions that it's very hard to directly write down. So we want the power of full neural nets and the modern machine learning. And so how do you balance those two things? And that's what makes it extremely interesting to me from an ML perspective. Yeah, yeah. 
I, I feel like it, I did a whole lot of listening this episode, but this, this is stuff I haven't thought about very much. It's really interesting to hear you talk about them and some really interesting problems. Thanks for talking about it. Um, I think we're uh, close to done here. Was there anything you wanted to talk about that we didn't hit on or any final thoughts? We talked a bit about historical OCR. I just want to like shout out to some other groups out there working on this. Someone who knows a lot about historical OCR is David Smith. He's done some work on, on statistical models. He has this really cool thing where you do collation and OCR post-correction at the same time. So you get a bunch of different noisy OCRs of the same text and then use a neural model to bring them together to correct errors, which is cool. He's also part of a couple bigger projects that are trying to establish the current state of OCR on historical documents, like where the challenges are, what the important use cases are, where do we need to put more effort, how can we bring the community together. And there's a public synopsis of that work on his website for anybody who's interested. What's the state of historical OCR? How, what, what should I use if I want to do this? I would, I would start there. Great. Thanks. This has been really fun. Cool. Yeah. Thank you guys for inviting me. It was super fun.